Hola, hello, hi, bienvenido, and welcome back or welcome to Mentors Today. Ileana, come Oh, no. Ileana's still on sabbatical. So today it's me again. Hi, welcome back. And I'm super excited to talk about our guest today, Leslie Feinstein. She is the founder and managing director of Graham & Walker, which is a $10 million venture capital fund and community that's on a mission to reshape the NASDAQ by investing in tech companies founded and led by women. In 2017, Leslie started a Facebook group for women CEOs and tech companies, which quickly grew to become the most prominent network for women-founded startups and aligned investors in the U.S. In these years since, her company has connected thousands of women founders with hundreds of VC firms across the U.S. She was born and raised in Costa Rica. She moved to the U.S. and eventually attended Harvard Business School. She has since been named one of the Forbes most powerful women from Central America, the Puget Sound Business Journal 40 Under 40 list, Seattle Magazine's most influential people list. Leslie serves on the boards of the Harvard Business School Equity and Entrepreneurship Initiative, the Washington Technology Industry Association. She is a contributing writer for Fast Company Magazine, TechCrunch, Entrepreneur, and Fortune Magazines. And I can tell you, it's just recently. Leslie, welcome to the show, and it's great to hear you instead of just tweet DM at you. I am super excited to chat with you today. Thank you for having me. Real quick, before we jump into the meat of this conversation, telling your story. What publication was it that that article released a week or two ago? So the past couple of weeks, I did um, I did a piece on disruptive innovation in Fast Company. Okay. Yesterday, I had a piece on the different experiences that founders have when fundraising, and that was on TechCrunch. They were kind of back to back because I, I don't get a lot of free time to write. But recently, I, I was on a <laughs> I was on like a really long airplane flight, and I was alone, and and so I just like sat down. I was offline. I didn't have internet. And I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And I ended up with two articles out of it. That's awesome. You are a proud Costa Rican. I am. Um, I, think, I think that is one of the reasons that we somehow eventually crossed paths. And, um, so talk about that. Talk about your, your kind of your family history. You're born and raised. Yeah, in I was like, you know, when I, when I tweet in Spanish, like most of my followers are in America and in the US. And, and so like, there's few people that engage back with me in Spanish, and you're one of them. And, and I even cheat sometimes when I don't understand every word of it, and I'm like, all right, I'm Google Translating. Are you Google Translating? Oh, that's funny. Okay. Well, no, some, some, about 40, 50% of the time. I'm not going to lie. So tell us. Tell us. Born in, born in Costa Rica. I was born in Costa Rica. So what happened was um, my, my grandparents are actually uh, from Poland. They left Poland in the 20s and 30s kind of escaping pogroms and poverty. And so my grandfather tried to immigrate to New York. I, I never met my grandfather. And so so I tell the story as it has been told to me. But Sure, yeah. So the, the story that I know is that uh, my grandfather tried to go to New York and done some research since uh, the United States had legislation around that time. Uh, and basically it established quotas for immigrants. So it, it was something like they would only allow a percentage of existing population from that country into America in any given year. So if there's like 100 people from Poland, then they would let 1% more, like one more person. And I guess the quota must have been full for that year because my grandfather and the other men that were on that boat uh, were not allowed to immigrate into America. But they were on a boat and, you know, what do you do? So they got on another boat uh, that... As I was told, the story was sailing south to Colombia, uh, which is where they thought they were going. 
and it docked in Costa Rica on the way, and they realized on the boat that they met their requirements to enter the country. Uh, and and there so, you go. A little bit of happenstance, and my grandfather wow. and then in that boat. I'm not sure if it was 11 men or 13 men, um, but somewhere around there, they they got off the boat, they immigrated into Costa Rica, and they worked. And my grandfather, you know, worked and saved some money and sent back for his sweetheart, uh, my my grandmother Dora who my daughter is named for. And, and that was kind of how the Jewish community in Costa Rica was seated. Um, oh, so wow. For nearly, you know, it's nearly a century since that happened. And um, now, you know, I'm a second generation Costa Rican. I'm a, super proud of, of my origin and my country. Um, my family is all uh, 100% down there. The only reason I'm here is because I, I came here to study and then I ended up getting married. And, and There you go roots as you would call them um right but yeah like my, my life and my heart are in costa rica and my family uh part of my heart is is here in america and so you came to study undergraduate or undergraduate you did in central america and you came for graduate school to the US. yeah so i actually undergraduate i did a little bit in costa rica a little bit in america and a little bit in england i ended up graduating from uh, the london school of economics um just as a i my schooling like elementary and high school I studied at a British school in Costa Rica. And so it was kind of a natural extension to go to the University of London. Um, I ended up graduating from LSC. Um, I graduated college uh, right after the 2001 market crash and right before 9-11. And so I certainly tried to get a job uh, abroad. But, uh, you know, if it's hard to get uh, visas today, it was much harder around that time um and so great I, I timing have, great timing leslie <laughs> i know like my life is just like a series of like you know all of these things make sense in retrospect um sure. if not in the moment um so anyhow it's 2001 i went back to costa rica i did basically spent four years doing whatever jobs i could find and that included working for family business um working for like procter and gamble locally in a call center um and I, I, I just knew that there was more that I wanted to learn and more that I wanted to do. And so I decided to do an MBA. It was general enough that I could kind of pursue a, a variety of different directions afterwards. And I, it's a funny story. I don't know if I should go this deep, but like. Go for it. Well, what happened was like at the time, it, it was, I think, October, November of 2004. And when I decided, okay, it's time to do an MBA and I want to do it next year. And I started looking into it, and lo and behold, I learned that you had to do this test called a GMAT. And GMAT at the time in Costa Rica was only offered two times a year, like literal two days a year, one day in December, one day in May. And if I waited until May, I would have had to wait another year and a half to go to business school. And so I was like, all right, I guess I'm taking the GMAT next month. <laughs> so I, like, I bought like a business <laughs> review. I hustled my butt off, like studied every day for uh, whatever time I had, about a month, every single day. And I went and took the gym, the GMAT and I killed it. Nice. Nice. And it changed Some, my life. Sometimes maybe, sometimes maybe better to not have a lot of time to think about it. Yeah, exactly. just, had to, just had to jump in and do it. And it changed your life. As you said, it, it opened up a series, series of doors that lead us to this podcast today. A hundred percent. Yeah. I, you know, GMAT was December 7th. Application deadlines was the first week of January. I didn't have time to do anything. And uh, even like 
in between the GMAT and the application deadline, my grandma died. <laughs> so, I mean, oh. it was just like that absolute insanity of, of just feeling like it's now or never. I'm like sitting at my, at my grandmother's Shiva writing my application essays, wow. um, like reading them out loud to my brother. And it wasn't enough time. Like I didn't even have enough time to ask people to write recommendations for me. No, you just had to like get it in, like you make sure you didn't miss the deadline. Exactly. And you can wait for a later deadline because then you don't have enough time to get your visa. Right. So yeah, I mean, all's well that ends well. I ended up applying to two schools and getting getting admitted to both of them because because of that fortunate GMAT <laughs> score. Right. But that's um, like, like you said, the serendipitousness, both good, tragic and exciting of life. You know, it's only later in life, as I always say, in my early to mid 50s now and so you went, you, you take those experiences and, and we really want to spend time highlighting what you're working on now today, because um, it's so incredible and it's such a great story. But I do have a quick question that kind of is an entree to that, right? So you, you took that, your, your business educational background, and you parlayed that into a career in, let's call it, I'll, I'll say like a, a typical, but great career in product management across a number of different companies, Microsoft being a very, a very prominent example of that. And I'm curious, as we start to then, we'll talk about Graham Walker in a minute here, has, did your experiences on the product side of business and technology in particular, um, did that, ha has that colored the way that you look at startups and founders and the people that you support today, or is it a non-factor? Partly yes, partly no. I think my role was a lot more specific to the product, but I think both my experience in product management, um, and uh, strategy consulting uh, kind of earlier, you know, you, you learn skills that you take with you forever, right? Like influence without authority as a product manager, right? you're trying to get the engineering team to, to do what you need them to do, but they don't actually report to you. And they, right, right. so you have to influence and you have to get your agenda um, through. And, and that's very similar to being an entrepreneur where you need to, you need to get people to do the thing that you want them to do, but you have absolutely no leverage. Right. <laughs> yes. You're trying to get, you're mostly trying to get a bunch of people who don't work for you to do stuff for you. Yeah, exactly. Like that's basically your entire, your entire experience. And then the other part is like, um, you know, as a product manager, and then I kind of went more like a general management direction um, before I started my own company. But it like, I just like, I think the thing that I discovered is like, I love launching things. Like it's just really, really, really fun. And like, I love, I love launching new businesses. I love, love like trying new things. And it, it's sort of woven into the DNA of the fund itself. It's just that love for entrepreneurship at its core, like putting great things out into the world and seeing how, how people react to them. Um, and, and maybe you find something that, that, that can turn into something greater. I, I just have this, like, I just found this profound love for, creating things um, early in my career. And, and I think I follow that to this day. Yeah, I, I, it's a very similar experience. You and I are cut out of the same DNA in many ways, I can already tell. I didn't know it in the first, I call it like kind of the first 10 years of my career when I was a worker person. I didn't appreciate it at the moment, but then looking back as I got deeper into my entrepreneurial career, I clearly see that even in my worker B days, I was drawn to companies or jobs where I either had a ton of autonomy to build and create, or I was working for like really dynamic entrepreneurs who were mentors to me or inspiring to me. At the time, I just thought I was, you know, I'm taking a great job with a good salary, et cetera. You know, I'm doing, I'm selling something cool or fun or that I thought I could be good at. But when I looked back, I was like, oh yeah, no, that's why you liked working there. 
It's because they were you were part of building something, even though you were not the guy. Uh, so no, it's I, I can appreciate that. So let's let's jump in. Let's talk about Graham and Walker. Did it really start as a Facebook group? <laughs> I mean, I know Graham, I, I know the fund didn't start as a Facebook group, but like let's talk about this whole let's unpack this whole how did we go from we launched a Facebook group for women executives and building relationships to you launch a venture capital fund. And then at some point, please tell with our audience the inspiring stories behind the namesakes, Graham and Walker, uh, because that's an awesome story in and of itself. So first, first things first, like you start building this community of, of women, business people and founders, investors, you just start building this, this group of women. I presume it was mostly geographically in the Northwest, but then again, it's Facebook. So it could have been anywhere. Yeah. So, um, so yes, I mean, it, it was a Facebook group. Like I, you know, people ask like, what's your founding story? I'm like, it, there is no founding story. It was not strategic. It was not on purpose. It was born out of frustration and the need for connection. So what happened was, you know, I, you know, did Microsoft product management, um, left Microsoft, went to work at all these startups. Um, and eventually I, I decided to start my own so it's, it's like 2016, I started, I tried a few different things before ultimately launching my company, which was entrepreneurship games for kids. I did all the things that you're supposed to do. I bootstrapped the thing right here from my basement. I had, you know, sales and customers and, and press and like all the things, great numbers that were up and to the right. And I wanted to turn it into an ed tech company, but for that you need money. And so I started trying to raise venture capital more, more accurately trying to raise um, an, uh, angel capital. And I, I guess I just, I did all the things that you're supposed to do or all the things that people told me that I was supposed to do. And um, somehow just didn't, just didn't connect and just couldn't get like traction on the fundraising. And it certainly wasn't black trying, but primarily I just sort of think I didn't understand why I wasn't getting the traction uh, with the fundraise because on paper, you know, I, on paper, I was the sort of person that I thought should have been able to raise capital. I, I wasn't new to the startup world. Uh, I, I had worked in very successful startups. I was kind of de-risked as a founder, right? Like I'm the type of founder who like were broken out of, of uh, a company that had a highly successful exit um, and then worked kind of board exposure level executive role at a very hot startup at the time. And, and I still couldn't, like, it's like I went from being the hot hire to being the cute mommy. And, uh, wow. um, and like, I just didn't understand why. And beyond anything that had to do with, like, oh, this is unfair, it was more like, oh, this is a waste of time. <laughs> like, yeah. what is this? Like, 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 I'm trying to accomplish. So it wasn't even, like, the, the chip on the shoulder yet. It was more just the, like, hey, wait a minute. Like, I'm trying to accomplish this, and this is, uh, this is inefficient and isn't working. So, like, how? It's 100 how million. I get one life. Why am I wasting it? Like, this is just something tell me what I'm doing wrong. And of course, I internalized it. Of course, it was like, I must be doing something wrong. Like, sure. it's not my bay. And I, this is like the, this is the lean in era, right? When we all thought, yeah. well, you're just not leaning in hard enough, Leslie. Right, right. We, we, there was no, there was no room to stop and think like, maybe the whole industry is just wrong. Exactly. Like, no, <laughs> it totally, it was me. And around that time uh, was when uh, PitchBook published the first data, um, to my knowledge. And they said that at the time, only 2.19% of venture capital had been invested in all women teams, uh, which I uh, qualified under. Um, and 
And, and to me, that was like, oh. <laughs> They're like, wait, I did check all the boxes, except I also checked this box that I was yeah, in. I'm like, oh, I checked oh. the box. Microsoft, okay. startup experience, executive exposure board, traction, sales revenue, a product market fit. I went to Harvard, like London School of Economics. I'm multilingual. Oh, but I'm also a woman. I was like, okay, if this experience has something to do with this piece of my identity that I can't control, then maybe there's unwritten rules on how I can do better. Maybe if I just go find who are the women who have done this successfully, maybe they can help me figure it out too. And that's how the Facebook group started. Okay, so where do I find these women? Like most women's networking groups were were kind of general business groups and that's very different from raising venture capital. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to find specifically women who have either already raised VC or are out on the fundraising trail trying to raise venture capital. Yeah, because that was the problem you were trying to solve. Like you weren't, you weren't like, I need to be inspired. Like, I don't know. I have imposter syndrome. You're like, no, I know I can do this. I just got to figure out who knows the secret code to how we get the money. So let's find those women and like, let's start talking about them. And to be fair, I, I don't know that I would have vocalized, I know how to do this. I probably would not have. And to this day, sure. I kind of don't know. <laughs> but I did feel like the problem here is not my ability to do marketing, sales, or development, or operations. The, the problem is the capital that I need to grow the company that I want. The path to that is venture capital. So I'm going to go find the women who have done that before. And so it started off as a Facebook group with like 25 CEOs um, all here in Seattle. And they just started adding other women that they knew. And then it kind of got a little bit out of my hands. I'm like, okay, who is actually a part of this thing and who are they? And so I slapped an application form online so that people sort of, I, I would at least know who they are and what they're working on and, and make it like continue to be a relevant group of like people raising venture capital or who had raised it in the past. And it kind of just took off. I mean, not to minimize my part in the thing, but it was a thing that a lot of people needed. Obviously, yeah. And it became a really, really special group where it's both like safe, relevant, and effective. And like nobody was there just for the rah-rah piece of it. Like these are people who actually, like I said earlier, like what's a girl got to do to just get her business off the ground? Like, Yeah, very sounds like an actionable group of women. Yeah. Like, hey, we're here to help each other do very specific things. Let's go. Let's exactly. make progress together. And, and feeling like that, like, hey, you're not alone. You're not crazy. You're not, it's not you. This is, this is all of us. And so I, you know, did an event to connect founders with investors, uh, with a few volunteers from the group. And, and it just really, really resonated. Like the, the first event was here in Seattle and we put together 50 women CEOs and 50 investors. And, and I remember that like nobody in Seattle had ever seen that many women CEOs in one room at one time. And I was like, whoa, there's this many. And I'm like, there's at least three times this many. Right. And and by the way, context again, that's not this is not that long ago. Right. I mean, it feels like it's like 14 million years ago because of the pandemic, but it really is like five years ago. Yeah, it's really not that long ago. <laughs> so we went, so we it went from Facebook group to real life group. Exactly. Right. So and, and so now it's this alliance of women that are supporting one another. And initially I thought, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do chapters. And so I started with a chapter in Seattle and a chapter in New York. And then I was like, okay, I don't have the money to do chapters and have them all be gone. So I'm going to have to do it virtually. And so we, we started doing our virtual accelerator. This is like way before, you know, these days all accelerators are online. 
but ours was like way before any of this. Right. And so, yeah, like kind of piece by piece, we figured out how to build what became the female founders Alliance in 2019. I hired Rory Tickham, who is, you know, my, my COO and now venture partner. Um, later that year, Divya Kakad, who's our GM of platform today. Um, Amanda came later and now we have Jenna. So like slowly we've kind of bootstrapped our way into a team that runs this platform, this community. And um, it went from 25 founders on Facebook to today. I think we are at around 2,800 founders um, with a broader community of 50,000 people. That's awesome. How proud of you I am as a stranger, right? Just from watching your journey and you, um, you know, humbly but confidently um, telling your story on Twitter and 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 in all the other mechanisms that you write about and share your story. I mean, it's uh, it is it is something to be applauded, and it's, it's really impressive. That. And 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 you literally chose in the naming of it could have just been Female Founders Alliance, the fund could have been you and your three partners names, but it's not, it's Graham and Walker. And why is that? Yeah. So great question. Um, so, you know, in the process of realizing that this was going to be a real thing, um, I also realized that the name Female Founders Alliance was super problematic. Um, <laughs> and really, I mean, you know, when it, it wasn't a strategic name, like it was a, it was the name of a Facebook group and it was actually called Female Founders in Seattle. And then somebody from Portland joined and I was like, okay, so now it's not in Seattle. So now it's just Female Founders. <laughs> it's really generic. I need to like slap a third word in there. Okay. Alliance. That is literally how we were named. <laughs> like this, this is this is so this is how this is how big strategic decisions get made. Exactly, like probably on my phone while making dinner for like hundred percent. <laughs> and so, but it wasn't it wasn't a name that you could grow into. It was a name that like made people think that we were a nonprofit. And it's really really important to me that women who are raising venture capital are not seen as charitable causes, but investable opportunities. And so, I really wanted to stay away from like having kind of nonprofit status or nonprofit sounding name. So I knew that it was not our forever name. And, and so it was a matter of like finding what, what is a good name uh, for like a forever name, just like, you know how like for you buy a starter home and then a forever home. So like I had my starter name and I needed my forever name. And so it took a while to figure out. And eventually we settled on Graham and Walker and Graham and Walker. When people hear it, uh, the reaction that you get is like, oh, it sounds expensive. It sounds like a law firm. It sounds like an accounting firm. Like, <laughs> and I know that like part of the magic of the name is that the first thing that people conjure, most people conjure when they hear it is, okay, it's two guys. Interesting. Something in the investment in the finance world, but it's two men. Interesting. And that's what most people will like just conjure naturally because that that is what most things that are named something and something that's what they have are. been throughout history mm-hmm. correct yeah. sure like um jp morgan like right exactly yeah no exactly in, in the american history or business history or cultural history right yes it, when, there, when, when there was a name or two names on the door or on the wall or on the masthead as they would have said in the old days right it's it was two dudes and it's it was two exactly. white dudes but when you actually double click on, on what our name stands for, so Graham and Walker is named after the first woman CEO of a Fortune 500 company, Catherine Graham of the Washington Post, and the first woman self-made millionaire, uh, which is uh, Madam C.J. Walker. It, it's a name that on its, just by itself, it's a very quietly elegant way of making people question their own assumptions. Exactly. Um, it uses a lot of 
of credibility, right? Like it's, it's one thing to be the general partner at Female Founders Alliance. It's another thing to be the general manager for Emin Walker Venture Fund. And, and, <laughs> and, and, and I would argue created, does create like a level of responsibility. 100%. Uh, right? And account of like, because just, just projecting myself into your brain and how I would think if I were you, there's a, there's a something to that. There's a gravitas that's required. There's a gravitas. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a seriousness. I, I, the best analogy I could think was my dad, you know, giving me a big speech, like when I was leaving for college and, and it was mostly just this speech about like the family name. Right. And, and now it's your responsibility to carry that out into a new part of the world. Right. And so you're doing, you're doing that with, with, with Madam Walker and, and Catherine Graham's names. I, you know, you just gave me the word that I've been looking for, for, for months, which is gravitas. Like it really does have gravitas and that's it. My mission is done. We're, that's, uh, I've done my work. Um, <laughs> you look at the world of venture capital and like we, it, it's important to us to be taken seriously as a fund and for our founders to be taken seriously as founders, not as causes. Um, like we want to be the best VC out there and doing that. And, and, and we want to get there by investing only in women. Or investing only in, in mixed gender teams is more accurate. At the time that we named Graham and Walker, there was not a single venture capital fund that was named after women's last names. One more now, which is Han Ventures, which is amazing. I love that she named it after herself. Good that's the yeah, that's the one that recently, or at least the publicity was around the recent launch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, yeah. Yep, yep, um, yep, yeah. But most of the funds that are led by women don't have a name like Kleiner Perkins, really. They don't have a name like. No. We just really wanted to say, like, we are for real. Uh, we're here to play. We're going to change the face of the Nasdaq, and we're going to do it by investing only in women. It's awesome. It's incredibly thoughtful. Uh, I don't care how we like worked our way into it. As you say, like, as you worked your way through the founder, female founders Alliance naming and all like the truth is you got to the place that you have that story. Right. And, and my attitude about naming has always been much more liberal. I think than some people's, I think ultimately most naming that we do and most things in business are all just made up words anyways. Yeah. Uh, right. The, the Google wasn't a word before it was like Kleenex, all those famous stories we always talk about. Right. But, but as my dad used to say, you know, does the name or does the, the, the first sentence that you share with someone, does that beg them, compel them to want to ask, wait, tell me more, right? Wait, I want to understand that. Wait, hold on. Tell me the rest of that story. What is the rest? Wait, Graham and Walker. Okay, that's interesting. Like, but neither, like your name, your name is not Walker or Graham. Like, what, what does that mean, right? And now you've engaged them in a conversation and that's where you want to get people to. Because then you get to tell the rest of the story that you just told, right? Which is, is so... Uh, incredibly insightful. Awesome story. Um, okay, so what does is, what is Graham and Walker look like in the next five, 10 years? Right. So this is fund one, you're fighting uphill, you're hustling, you're building, you, you've scraped out this first fund, as you say, you're real, you're in the game. Um, what, but, but in the venture capital game, we, we all know, right? It's, if you're going to be really in it, in it, like it's an iterative thing, it's a multiple fund thing, it's a sequence of of commitments over you know, 10, 20, 30 years. So what is, what's the vision for Graham and Walker over that period of time? Yeah. So we want to be, uh, we want to be the top fund in Silicon Valley and America, and we want to do it by investing only in, uh, in mixed gender teams. We want founders to IPO. We want to raise additional funds that uh, can be invested uh, in additional companies and 
by definition, venture capital is not for everyone. And, and we know that even if I uh, keep raising additional VC funds and raise bigger VC funds and invest in more companies, we're only ever going to invest in a small fraction of the founders that we come across. So the other side of my goal is, okay, well, if I can only invest in a small fraction of the companies um, that I come across, I want to at least help all the others in, in whatever way we can. And that, that's where the community comes in. Uh, we're going to safeguard that community and keep it going and try to touch as many founders' lives as we as we possibly can. I think it's a quote that's attributed to F. Scott Fitzgerald. The test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing truths in simultaneously. And I feel like on the one hand, we are going to be a super selective venture capital fund. And on the other hand, I, I'm calling borderline obsessed with making sure that those founders that we do not invest in don't stop for a minute because of our rejection. You know, right. I mean? like I, if we have a part in discouraging any founder, then I failed. Um, I, I want everyone to find their purpose and their meaning in a way that is realistic and doable for them. Um, and so there, there's two parts of Graham and Walker that uh, will coexist and feed off each other. And one day, you know, we'll have more GPs in the fund and I will hand over the reins and I'll retire and, and, and <laughs> watch, you know, I, I wrote an article when, when, when we launched the fund and like the true vision is like one day my daughters are going to graduate from college and like I will measure how successful I was by what companies are on the job there the day that they. Um, yeah, I, I actually think I read that. I think I read that article of yours, which I, which immediately resonated with me and, and thinking your daughters are at six and three at the early days of the journey that I've lived most of through most of already. Mine's 28 will be 29 later this year. And, uh, and yet I still think about the world in that way, right? It's like, I'm, I'm trying to lay the foundation through our work, through my work, um, and just in general and the causes and the people and the policies and things that I support in life to, to create that better world that we always desperately need. I say that phrase all the time, but in her, I always think about it first through the lens of her. And then eventually, like if she and her boyfriend get married and have kids, like their kids, right? My grandkids someday. A lot of VCs say, I only invest in founders that I would work for. And uh, for me, the version of that is I only invest in founders that I would let my daughters work for. Yeah, no, that's, that's, yeah, that's incredible. All right. So a couple of personal questions. We touched on a little bit of how the Seattle community is kind of, as you say, coming back to in person again and kind of reconnecting again post pandemic. So just on the personal side, I mean, we've all gone through a ton. You've literally built something while you've been going through this pandemic. And so I'm curious, like, did any of the pandemic effect on your life, did it change any presumptions or prior beliefs you had about business or the venture business that you're in now or just life in general? Oh, what a great question. I, I don't know that I have enough distance from it to answer the third part of that. Um, but for now, what I will say is uh, I raised most of this VC fund um, sitting in my basement in yoga pants. And a lot of it with like a baby in my arms or, or a toddler in my arms. I raised this fund while being able to like sit down and have dinner with my girls and my husband every single day. And I legit never thought that that was possible. I saved a ton of money on travel, but I also like, I, I got to kind of have my cake and eat it too a little bit because, you know, when, when I started raising the fund, Ruth, my youngest was, she was just a few months old. She was like six months old. And so I would have spent a ton of time away from from her and from Dora and from my husband 
in, in 2019, right? Like my travel schedule that year was going to be very, very packed. And as it turned out, I didn't need to do that. I just, you know, I was uh, video meetings all day, every day. So that really, really changed my approach to how much do I actually need to travel to get things done? On the flip side, it also made me realize that that sometimes there is no replacement for breaking bread and clinking glasses and giving someone a hand. Like now that we are going on the road, we just had a happy hour here in Seattle. We had a happy hour in New York with our community last week. We're going down to Silicon Valley in two weeks. You know, and now that we get to like gather again, I, I realize how powerful it is, uh, how powerful our community is live and in person. And, and there's really no replacement for it. So the truth is somewhere in the middle. And, and again, it's like it's two seemingly opposing truths that can coexist in my mind. And I love, I love how you open, I love how you open the answer to is you, I think you're a proxy for all of us. It's still pretty fresh, right? So I like that the, the question is like very reflective as if it was like some distant past, but the truth is it's still like, we're just emerging from this, I think. So my friend, let's close this. Let's, let's offer some specific actionable advice for our audience. And this can be to any part of the audience, if you want to talk to women founders, if you want to talk to investors, if you, I, I, this, is, this is your moment. So you are the mentor for the day, for the rest of the show. Um, give us three specific pieces of advice um, that you want people to go away from this conversation with. Well, I really did not prepare for this question. so <laughs> That's okay. Um, no, but I'll tell you a few things that work for me really well. Um, one is... Um, to the extent possible, don't compare yourself to people who are further along um, because it's your journey, right? And um, I think you, I am a lot happier when I kind of put my blinders on and um, and just focus on doing my own thing and staying in my own lane. Um, yeah, and conversely, if I when I fail to do that, when I kind of compare uh, against other people's journeys. Um, I can, I can really get in my own head about it and it's just not healthy and it's not, it's not productive. Um, that's wonderful. That, that is wonderful. Number one. Um, a second thing is, uh, don't be transactional. Um, mm, amen, sister. Amen. Yeah. Like don't be transactional. Like I think that people miss that. Um, especially now that like, you know, um, it's not one for one relationships, God willing relationships are long careers are long. Um, and, um, I think that like true success is letting those relationships compound over time versus expecting something from someone immediately or, um, and, and that can be anything from like, um, you know, Maybe you get you get you get a rejection from a from a VC firm and um, don't don't discount them. Build the relationship um, because you don't you don't know you don't know what's coming down the road for you and for them. Um, maybe that can just be you know um, you have an opportunity to to do a um, a speaking engagement and they can't afford to pay you. And I know that we say like charge what you're worth, et cetera, et cetera, but but. Maybe sometimes you want to think about uh, helping the conference out or help, you know, like maybe they are not uh, in a position to, to pay what you want. And like, don't be transactional. Um, think long-term, think about like building those relationships and building those kind of 
long-term collaborations because it really, really pays off uh, in in the long term. Um, Powerful. Pretty. This is pretty good, by the way. You're two for two uh, for not for not being prepared. So no no pressure on this third one. Um, well, I guess the third one is like what I uh, we have it as one of our values, and I've I've said it multiple times through this conversation. Actually, I probably say it uh, at least on a daily basis, um, and that is that uh, you get one life, and uh, that is like one of our literal corporate values: is you get one life. You, Rob, get one life. Your daughter gets one life. I get one life. My kids get one life. And you got to use it. You got to make it worthwhile. And to me, that means both that you work on things that matter. You work on things that matter to you. Um, It means that you give yourself a break. Um, It means that, like, you know, every job has parts of the job that are just parts of the job. (laughs) They're not fun or, like, they're not your favorite. Like, that's not what I'm saying. Like, we all have to do things that feel like work, but it should feel like you're spending your life doing things that matter. And the other thing that that, that, that means for me, sort of like on average, it should feel like it's like, there's a point to what you're doing. Um, and, and the other thing that that means to me is, is like, have fun, like not get too serious about it. We've got to have fun. It's got to feel like it's worth your time and that means that you have to enjoy the people that you work with. If you're going to spend a lot of time working, you better enjoy the people that you're around. Um, can't take yourself too seriously. You can't, you know, it's um, it's about working hard, working for things that matter, um, but also like finding finding true enjoyment in what you do and who you do it with. Um, and one of those things are true, you know, maybe, and, and again, this is a little bit high on the Maslow, Maslow pyramid, right? Like sometimes there have been points in my life when I just needed a job and it is what it is. Of course, um, all of us. And like, if you, if, if that's the point in your career in which you are, then like by all means do the thing that you need to do to get yourself to the place where you need to get to. The once you're beyond that, like um, you really do get one life. And, and I, I think it's really important to make count because um, you don't get another one. Leslie Feinstein, what an incredible conversation. This is a pretty impressive way to activate a Twitter friendship. So I am grateful for that. Thank you for spending an hour with us. Um, I'm picturing picturing you in your basement, even though you may not be in your basement. Um, I am in my basement. Your basement is a central character in your story, which I I loved. With like pictures of my kids all over it. Um, Uh, There's joy. And like, There's I want to shout out an apology to all the people that invite me to be on their podcast who I've turned down. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, really, really people doing these things. Um, and I, I just kind of pick one every like three to six months. So sorry, everybody. Lucky but, us. Yeah. Lucky us. We're grateful. We're grateful that you took the time and hopefully we made it enjoyable and comfortable. So let's make sure that folks can follow you and find you. So how, how can we find you or the firm on social media, website, however you'd like for people to be able to get in touch with you? The firm is at Bram and Walker and spelled out. Uh, so you can find at Bram and Walker uh, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on, on Insta. Website is bramwalker.com. And I am, I am the most engaged on Twitter. So you can find me there. Um, 
unless and until Elon ruins it, you can find me on Twitter. <laughs> um, I'm actually like, I'm, I'm giving the guy a chance, but you can find me there at Leslie Feinzeig. And I love making friends on Twitter. I've made some really great friends. So, so find That's me. That's awesome. Thank you, Twitter, yeah. whoever owns it. Thank you. Everybody. Thank you, Twitter, for bringing Leslie and I together. So, yes, this is, yeah. this is and, terrific. And like, Thank you. If you follow me on Twitter, do not DM me your decks. Put them through. <laughs> yes, there we go. Uh, in, go to the website. Find them there, folks. That's the way to do it. As always, we thank you so much for listening. Today's show was recorded in Los Angeles and Guadalajara, produced by Deanna Bernal in Mexico City, and promoted by the content team at Growth Hacks in Tijuana, Mexico. You can always find and share our show via any popular podcasting platform, as well as find us on social media at Mentors Today on Instagram. If you'd like to connect with our hosts, you can find them on Twitter or Instagram at I am Rob Ryan or at Ileana JAF. Gracias, thank you, and we'll see you next time.